financial inclusion is really, really imperative, but let us not use regulation to stifle innovation. Let us create an enabling environment where uh, investors are able to participate fully and deploy all of their technologies that will add value uh, to the local uh, policies and uh, local development objectives. Hello and welcome to the Brentas Foundation podcast, where we throw light on some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marino Wongokulo, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So Africa is on the cusp of a seismic demographic change, not just numbers, but also in distribution as the world's fastest urbanizing region. To develop Africa's economies at a rate quick enough to keep pace with its rapid expanding population, projected to double by 2050, the continent requires large injections of foreign and local direct investment. What policies and leadership choices might ensure a positive cycle of growth, investment, job creation and state capacity? At present, in just 30 years, Nigeria's population will increase to more than 400 million. While Tanzania's currently 53 million will grow to the same size as that of Russia at 137 million. Kenya's will more than double to 95 million, while Uganda will balloon from 43 million to 106 million, according to the United Nations. This is, to put things into perspective, the same amount of time as since the fall of the Berlin Wall. More than half of the population of Sub-Saharan Africa is today under 25, half of whom are unemployed, accounting for 60% of all the continent's jobless. This presents a politically explosive scenario. Today's episode is an interesting one because we will be hearing more about the practical realities of investing on the continent and why we need to change our tack. In this episode, we will hear briefly from two well-versed professionals whose work and experience speaks to investing on the continent. The first is Mr. Thomas Schaefer. At the time of recording in 2019, he was the managing director of Volkswagen South Africa. He is now upgraded and is the global CEO of the German parent company Skoda Carbrand. The second guest who will feature very briefly will be Mr. Daniel Nguepe, who until 2020 led visas relations with policymakers and central bank regulators in sub-Saharan Africa for nearly a decade. Visa, as in the enablers of the bank card burning in your pocket, purse or wallet at the moment, yes, that visa. Mr. Nguepe is now a senior advisor at Connect Frontier LLC, a company that advises on strategy, policy, and mitigating risk in emerging and frontier markets. On that note, let's get straight into the episode. In November 2019, the Brentis Foundation organized the Anor Swalu Dialogue. The purpose of the 2019 dialogue was to discuss how African countries could unlock greater foreign and domestic investment. I'll read an excerpt of the report for the dialogue. The gathering agreed on a practical, implementable set of investment protocols that would inspire investor confidence and in turn boost economic growth, jobs and stability. In the words of the foundation's chairman, President Olusegun Obasanjo, we had deep and robust discussions about how we can get Africa to take its rightful place as a global economic powerhouse by attracting the investment needed to build our economies and improve the lives of our people. 
to develop Africa's economies at a rate fast enough to keep pace with Africa's fast-growing population, which is projected to double by 2050. The continent requires large amounts of foreign and local direct investment. The scale of the challenge is daunting, as earlier described. The anticipated pace of growth of African cities is even greater, projected to remain at over 4% for the next three decades, twice the global average. Africa's share of global urban residents will as a result mushroom from some 11.3% in 2010 to 20.2% 20 by 2050. Using China's estimated capital spend per urbanizer, Africa's upcoming urban explosion would demand finding an extra $3 trillion in extra financing over the next generation on capital spend alone to get ahead of the urban demographic boom. So far, the continent is not even close. FDI flows to Africa rose to some $46 billion in 2018, an increase of 11% on 2017, according to UNCTAD's World Investment Report. Africa is better off in FDI terms than 2017, but not against much of the preceding five years. 2018's partially stronger FDI to the continent was still nearly 18% lower than the $56 billion achieved in 2012 and 2015. Africa's share of FDI, however, is just 3.5% of the $1.3 trillion. Its share of global population is almost 17%. Developing Asia received, by comparison, $512 billion in 2018 FDI, or nearly 40% of the total, closer to its global population share of 60%. Now, when you contrast that to what Africa received and its percent of the population, you get the reason why this is slightly problematic and something that we need to rectify. Of course, FDI figures are not a perfect metaphor for growth or development. Much of the 21st century boom in FDI in Africa and Latin America has centered on the commodity boom. Sustainable growth requires diversification of investment types. This is mirrored in the experience of many African countries, from Angola to Zambia. Government's failure to attract long-term investment beyond the commodity sector has been a break on growth and development. Across the continent, business and investor confidence is usually weak, their relationship fragile, reflecting some widespread corruption and wild swings in the commitment of governments to macroeconomic stability and the rule of law. The narrative with investors is consistent with this. At the Swalu Dialogue, I caught up with Thomas Schaefer and we chatted about how he would go about promoting the continent as the site of investment and what the constraints are that he has faced as an investor on the continent, as well as the role, if at all possible, for the private sector to contribute to development outcomes. But before I share that, I always feel like a good background story is helpful. Here is a snippet of a conversation between Dr. Greg Mills, Executive Director of the Foundation, and Thomas Schaefer on the history of Volkswagen in South Africa, the lessons from their operations in China, as well as VW's expansion to other African countries and the constraints thereof that exist with doing this. Tell us a little bit, uh, Thomas Schaefer, about the VW story uh, in South Africa. You've had a recent very large investment in, in the Polo. How did that come about? So we are in South Africa since 1951. Um, 
if you think a lot of South Africans think that Volkswagen is a South African company, which is nice. We're part of the society. We always have been. People grew up with our cars. Um, I always say I've got the easiest job in the world. Um, we've got a great market share, about almost 21% uh, in the passenger car market. Um, the Polos and Vivos are extremely well received in, in the market here. So so life is, is good. And uh, the reason why we reinvested in the new generations of the Polos and Vivos um, was because of our performance. We, within the global context, we have to compare ourselves to um, the factories in Europe. Um, we've got a sister factory in Pamplona in Spain, and uh, the per unit cost gets tracked very intensively. And because uh, we made incredible uh, um, progress in efficiency over the last couple of years, um, we have made it now to a point where we are slightly cheaper than cars from, uh, from Spain, which is closer to the bigger markets but um, we still make it and I mean of course the South African um, automotive master plan or the APDP at the time um, was very helpful in that so it created the the base for our being. What's the biggest constraint you face in terms of building your business a bigger business in South Africa is it to size the domestic market is it the cost of manufacturing what is it? Um, our market is uh, it's tough in South Africa it's been shrinking for a while um, so if there, was, if there were a bigger market, sure, there would be more reason to invest. At the moment, we are maxed out uh, in our facility. We have built 162,000 vehicles now and 100,000 engines. Um, we couldn't possibly build one more car. Um, I think the, the constraint for us in, in, in sort of in cost is mainly logistics, I would say. So the, the harbors are unfortunately not running efficiently. Um, our estimate is that they run at about 50% of uh, comparative harbors like in Temasek or in uh, um, Tanjung Pelipas in, in Asia. Um, so there we need, need to really focus and we've engaged uh, Transnet now over and over. Um, operating in a city that has two deep sea harbors, I mean, this is like, we should be flying. We should concentrate much more operations in, in South Africa. The big story of VW in the last uh, three decades has been your investment and operation uh, in China. It's made you the world's largest car manufacturer. Uh, um, it's been a tremendous success story by anybody's measure. What lessons have you learnt uh, in terms of African operations and indeed operating globally from your experience in China? China started as a complete coincidence when the Chinese government came to South Africa uh, to Germany in uh, the early 80s, uh, wanting to woo German uh, investment into China. And uh, we had a very switched on young HR manager who picked up the phone and invited the Chinese delegation to Wolfsburg. Um, and basically what uh, the lessons out of that was, um, you know, just even though it was completely unlikely that investment should go to China, no market at all, um, People only had bicycles. There was no reason to invest. The GDP was like non-existent um, per capita. So the um, they had a plan, and uh, what came out of it was just a, um, a brave plan between government and industry to um, grow the industry over the next 15 years, um, where government was putting their part to it, get the favorable environment, uh, make sure that government purchases uh, and so on. Um, at the same time, Volkswagen would take the leap of faith and start investing in this uh, country. And um, what got out of it is an amazing story that led now to more than 4 million cars production in China for Volkswagen alone. Plus, we have uh, 22 factories there now, all mega factories that um, are producing at their maximum. 
So I would say um, the lessons for, for Africa are probably um, similar like that. You know, if you analyze everything to death, um, if we had done this in the case of China, we probably would have not been there that early. It, it pays out to be an early mover. It pays out to rather get started than analyze things forever and uh, stay flexible and work between government and industry. And that's what we're trying to do now for the last um, so two and a half years with Africa. No, ask going to Rwanda, Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, and so on, Ethiopia, um, to really the same analogy. And somebody said the other day to me, um, when we started investing in, Af in uh, China in 1984, um, China's GDP per capita was half the size of Ethiopia's GDP per capita today. So, go figure. You mentioned your investments in Rwanda and Ghana. Uh, What's, what's been uh, um, most notable about the way in which governments have responded to you in both those countries? Has it been an, a smooth path? Yeah, it's been um, smooth in a way that um, we got things done. I mean, as you see, we're already on the ground, we're operating, and uh, we're uh, very surprised about the success, how well it happened. We, of course, had a thousand issues on the way to there. It was a steep learning curve. Uh, but the good thing is, um, it was never... Um, malicious uh, or in, intended to trip us up. Um, it was always um, that the respective administration or whatever didn't know what to do with certain things. So for example, container with uh, the first uh, kits arrives in, in, uh, in Kigali, customs uh, doesn't know what to do with it. They're like, okay, what now? So what papers need to be filled out? We never cleared an automotive container in the, in the country. So it was stuff like that, that then needed to be brought to the admin again. I said, okay, they've got to pass a rule on this and a law on that. And so we inched our way forward, but um, I would say I'm super, super happy with the progress and the learnings that we had specifically in Rwanda, which is like a perfect test environment for the, um, for the logic that we tried to roll out across Africa, which is not only to sell vehicles, but to create value to, um, to build cars, to, um, um, and, and offer mobility instead of to, to many million of people instead of just a few thousand cars to be sold. And that model we are trying in Rwanda, it's, I think we're going to break even early next year um, after one year of operation. That's phenomenal. So if you can now use the expertise and scale this into countries like Ghana or Ethiopia with higher population, then I think we could have a case. You, you, you spoke about some of the constraints in South Africa around ports. What are the big constraints to growing uh, your market share in Africa? Yeah, lo logistics is uh, the key inhibitor. Um, we, you know, like, I think we pay about 10 times as much for a, con for a container from Port Elizabeth to, let's say, Kigali or um, anywhere in Africa versus bringing a container from Germany to South Africa. It's insane. So it's, uh, if you then bring it down, so roughly say two and a half cars per container that you have to calculate. If you have like $9,000 for a container, uh, it's four and a half thousand uh, or four thousand dollars per car on top of that plus duties and taxes uh, makes cars unnecessarily expensive. So, so logistics is a problem. Um, Harbor, Dar es Salaam or Mombasa are horrible. I mean, things take forever to be cleared. Um, supply chain is super long, so um, if you can get the logistics right, we see things improving in, in a sense like the East African Railway. Now we can ship containers from Mombasa to Nairobi quicker. We're all hoping that this 
ultimately when volume comes up it, uh, it fits together and we have an infrastructure that can support it but it's one of the, the bigger problems that we have. What, what about uh, dumping of second-hand vehicles or, or fuel quality? Yeah those are the two um, uh, together with the uh, lack of financing, vehicle financing, those are the, the, like the two, three uh, major issues that stop the, in, the industrialization in automotive in Africa. Um, yeah, that's why we work basically with uh, countries like uh, Rwanda and Ghana who have the political will to actually do something about it. You know? And uh, it has to be, it has to go hand in glove with um, industrial uh, investment. So what we're saying is, for example, in Rwanda, um, you can't switch off import of used cars as it is because it's the only source of vehicles that they're getting. However, if we start assembling cars in the country and there is another offer, then you have to phase out the zero to three year old imports because that's just playing the system. And then you phase it out as you build cars in the country because the car you build today is a used car tomorrow and gets older and gets handed down the line. Um, in South Africa, we import zero used vehicles and uh, we've got plenty of uh, people with, with very little money that still need a used vehicle. But those vehicles are not imported from China or from Japan or from the US. They come from uh, cars that are manufactured in this country. So final question, the African car market's a little over a million units a year. Uh, South Africa is roughly half of that. Yep. How, what growth do you see over the next 20 to 30 years, over the next generation? Um, we believe with um, the economic modeling that we've been doing through the association, but also us within the company, um, there is uh, within the next 10 to 15 years already an opportunity of an additional 4 million vehicles, new vehicles per year. Um, that comes uh, out of markets like Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Kenya mainly. Um, not even looking into like major regional collaboration with the ECOWAS or EAC. So I would say if you, if you take the horizon a little longer, if we really get the collaboration in Africa right, there's no reason why we can't have a plus minus eight to 10 million car market in this, in this continent, which is you divide it by say 150,000 and then you get your amount of factories like in Newton Hague, like we have, um, with significant employment in the value chain, South Africa, what we do, 550,000 cars as an industry, uh, sorry, 600,000 cars as an industry production, and about uh, a million people are employed in the value chain. No? So a country like Nigeria is good for 2 million, so they could have 4 million people in the value chain. So I think that's something that one can fight for, and I believe the, the time is right, because we have no sort of legacy investment on the continent that we need to protect or change around, like Europe now with engines and battery electric. We could maybe even leapfrog this and, and, and get Africa straight on a, a sustainable trajectory for the next 20, 30 years. So I believe the time is ideal now to do something. Now I think that conversation was important to reiterate because it helps to understand the practical realities of doing business in some places like South Africa and why investors may be eager to explore other options elsewhere. It reminded me of a piece co-authored by a few of my colleagues, including Dr. Mills, whom you just heard interview Mr. Schaefer. They present, and I agree, that attracting long-term investment requires a different approach to what we use right now in a lot of African countries. It's more than sort of the bright, colorful displays of endless conferences and summits and the envoys of diplomats and others. As the authors say, there are good logical reasons for local investors to keep their money on home ground and for new ones to enter, but only if government can get its act together. 
Speaking on the South African government, they propose a different set of actions to shift their approach to FDI in South Africa, and I would argue for a lot of other African countries as well. First, institutionalize an investment promotion is a must. This cannot be a sporadic task, right? Dependent on personalities and personal energy and networks. It has to be a carefully targeted process by sector and company, and even by family office where permissible. Second, the attraction of FDI needs to be synchronized with government policy. You can't say we are open for business if we are not. And I say that in the most Greg Mills way ever. You absolutely cannot say you're open for business if you're not. It's just not going to work out well. How then do we compare with competitors on the cost of doing business, on taxation, on regulation, and on risk? If the answers to these are vague, the money will go where the rules are clearer. And that's just that. Third, related to the above, um, skip the generalities. And I really love this point. So the author shared that investors have heard all of the talk before. If they have not, they attend in the wrong event. <laughs> Avoid the blame game, rather, by stressing a national agenda that focuses on unity of identity. Speak about execution and about specific successes, including actual businesses that are prospering and of government effectiveness indicators that have empirically improved. Finally, they shared Establish priorities. Investors with their salt will understand that not everything can be achieved at once, in any government for that matter, but they will want to see astute use of political capital, not its abuse as an excuse for inaction. And that's a bit of a mic drop moment. And now, here is the conversation I had with Thomas Schaefer about how he would promote the African continent if that was his portfolio and some of the constraints that he's experienced as an investor on the continent. Let's listen in. How would you um, inspire people to invest in Africa um, if that was your portfolio you were marketing? So I think, um, first of all, the Africa's, um, the data existing on Africa is, is um, either unavailable or, or outdated. So. Uh, the perceived risk is so much higher than the, the actual risk. So you, this old saying, you know, if you want to know how the business is on the market, you got to go to the market. You got to be there, see what's going on. And uh, my experience over the last three years working with Africa has been incredibly um, rewarding. So Africa um, is not the short game. It's, you don't want to, you know, come in and just do a quick fix. You want to invest for for the long term, and it will be rewarding. So. As I said uh, earlier in our event here, um, when Volkswagen started in China in 1984, everybody was laughing and uh, nobody thought that China needs cars. Um, guess what happened? And I think now is the time to do something similar with Africa. We need to have the faith and the long breath to get it done. And uh, I can only uh, encourage anybody who is interested in uh, moving forward to think about Africa. And what would you say have been some of the key constraints for you when choosing where to invest on the continent? Um, logistics is one of the, the key factors. It's uh, tremendously complicated to bring uh, goods from A to B. Um, and the other factor, what I would say is even more important, is political will. Uh, so with, with political will and a good plan, one can uh, move mountains. But uh, if the will is not existing, I would say we cannot carry the dog for hunting. So it's uh, you either have a vision or you don't. And that's why we're working with countries like Rwanda, like Ghana, where this is enormously prevalent. Now we have a president and the government who actually want to change the fate of their country. And that's all it takes.
And the last question for you, uh, what role do you think the private sector can play in terms of social development and development outcomes in general on the continent? Well, the private sector has to play a, a big role in this. Uh, so we are not there just to make money. We are um, like in South Africa, um, we have an enormous portfolio on, on CSI projects where we give back to the society that we operate in and the same will happen on the, on the continent. The minute um, jobs get created and industry gets active, um, the, it will have spillover effects on the, on the social side of, of business. So um, it, it belongs together, it go, goes hand in hand from my perspective. All right, so before we leave, also at the Swalu Dialogue, I caught up very briefly with Daniel Nguepe. Uh, Daniel, at the time of speaking, led Visa's relations with policymakers and central bank regulators in sub-Saharan Africa. We spoke a little bit about the role of FDI in development outcomes um, and the potential of achieving social outcomes um, with foreign direct investment. Here's a snippet from that conversation. And what would you say are some of the key constraints to, constraints to investment in Africa? So obviously, uh, capital does not like uncertainty. And so, um, you know, when there is a regulatory uncertainty, that's a problem. When uh, there are no independent institutions, that's a problem. Uh, when things are not clear, it's a, uh, Africa should be, uh, they should provide clarity with regard to what is required for people to invest here without depending on personalities but really relying on the independence of, of institutions. Um, so as a sort of private sector actor, what would you say or how would you say investment and FDI can help achieve development outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, Africa is, is lagging behind the rest of the world and so uh, in order for Africans to participate in, a, in both local and global economies, uh, they should, we should embrace technology, we should, we should embrace innovation, we should not use localization regulation that excludes, that stifles innovation. And so uh, many of the young uh, people in Africa, which constitutes the, the largest uh, part of the population of the 1.2 billion people, they, they want the best, they want what the rest of the world has and they are prepared to uh, work for it. They are prepared, they are highly educated, they work hard, they, they want the best and so we should create an enabling environment for Africans to participate in the global economy. Is FDI potentially a vehicle to social outcomes and what um, do governments need to do to enable that? So absolutely, um, a lot, my business for example, we're not just here about uh, enabling payments, we're really here about making sure that there is financial inclusion. Without financial services, without access to financial services, not too many people's lives will be changed. So there's a, a, a great imperative on the part of businesses uh, to ensure that there is social impact, so, so that what we do impacts the lives of people positively. I was listening yesterday uh, to someone from Pick and Pay saying, Pick and Pay is not just about selling food, it's also about food security. And that's the outcome of, uh, uh, of what many, many businesses want. So one of the things, you mentioned finance right now, so access to finance, right, it's a key phrase when it comes to development, everybody's talking about that. Right. How do you think governments, private sector, and even civil society organizations can develop better financial systems that are inclusive and easy to access? Uh, as I was saying, uh, financial inclusion is really, really imperative, but let us not use regulation to stifle innovation. Let us create an enabling environment where 
uh, investors are able to participate fully and deploy all of their technologies that will add value uh, to the local uh, policies and uh, local development objectives. And the last question for you, Daniel. Mm -hmm. So if you were sitting in chambers with presidents of Africa's top 10 performing economies, what would your closing remarks um, on generating growth and development be to them? So I would tell Africans uh, the world is increasingly becoming connected. Uh, I would tell Africans uh, isolation, isolating yourselves uh, is not the way to go. I would tell Africans it is more important for them to do trade with each other uh, before they do trade with countries that are outside of the continent. If you enjoyed this episode, there is more. There's a treasure trove of sort of these 10-minute interviews at www.thebrentersfoundation.org where you can listen to many up-close and personal conversations with people like Thomas Schaefer, uh, with Tendai Biti, with President Hakinde Hechelema of Zambia, with Prime Minister Moketi Majoro of Lesotho, with President Rusheguno Basanjo, and many more. And all too soon, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Merci pour votre attention. Thank you for listening to this episode. As always, if you enjoyed the chat, please do share with others in your network. I'm your host, Marie Noel, and it's been an absolute pleasure sharing this time with you. Until next time, stay well. Stay well.